Danny J. And I'm Jill Coleman. Welcome to the Best Life Podcast. Here, we talk about everything from success, money, relationships, and entrepreneurship to productivity, honest communication, positive psychology, and how to cultivate an abundance mindset. Make money, travel the world, deepen your relationships, live full out. This is the best life. Yeah, so the WAP episode went well. (laughs) For for me, basically being like, "Hey, you've never heard of WAP, but we're going to talk about it right now. Let's go." (laughs) I thought we made I made a lot of good points around women's pleasure. We did, and I was listening to it on a walk because I listen to our own podcast on walks a lot, and. I saw somebody said they were going to make their husband listen to it. So I was going, when I was listening to it, I was thinking about if I was someone's husband, what would I be trying to hear for at that moment? So I was like, what was she trying to tell him subconsciously to listen for by listening to that? Mm-hmm. So maybe one of us said something she really likes in bed and she needed to like have us say it instead of her. I don't know. I like it, but you know, actually it's funny because you and I are both reading that book, Eight Dates Right Now Mm -hmm. uh, by John Gottman. And if you guys have not read this book and you're in a relationship or you're wanting to be in a relationship and you know, you want to kind of do these exercises for yourself and for your partner, but it's basically like, essentially it outlines eight like dates that you kind of go on with your partner and they're the eight most likely topics for there to be conflict in the relationship. So things like money and work, um, you know, sex, how you handle conflict trust and commitment, stuff like that. And I'm really enjoying it because it's so many things that I would normally probably not think to ask. Mm -hmm. One of the dates is sex and intimacy. So I know we've gotten this question before. And so I wanted to plug it here. If you are wondering or you want to have a conversation, this kind of goes to WAP too. You want to have a conversation with your partner about what you like or what you want or want to know what they want. Sometimes that can be like super awkward. And people have actually asked us this question. How do you bring up this stuff? So I would recommend telling your partner we're going to do these dates and then do the third date, which is the sex and intimacy one. And it's very like clear cut questions like, yeah, do you like, what's your preference? What's a fantasy that you've had? Like, and it helps you to like it not be super awkward. It's a little bit like, you know, it's more structured, but I think if you are for a conversation, that's a little bit hard to have like any of these topics, really for those conversations, it's a nice way to be like, it's not me, it's this book. Right. So like, it doesn't feel totally like, Hey, I'm just asking you what you like out of the blue. Yeah. Like we're doing this book, we're doing this activity together. together. Yeah. And it's fun. Like it's, it's, uh, it's been really fun so far. I I love next one yet, but I, that's our next one. So we'll see. I love that advice. I did this video a long time ago about how to have the money conversation with your partner. And one of the tips I gave was to have it come from someone else. So I was like, give them, have them watch a video or read this book and then say, oh, what did you think about that? So it doesn't feel like an attack or you're coming up with something. You're just like, maybe you agree with Jill and I, and you're trying to figure out how to get them. So I love that someone passed this on to their partner or the book idea that, that Jill said, because it is a lot easier when it's, it's like someone else's idea or you're like, we're just following this protocol right? and what happens to be talking exactly what I need to talk to you about right now. And one of the questions that came up and I've just been like read through the chapter. I haven't done it yet with Keith, but one of the questions is like, um, how, how, what's your preferred way for me to initiate sex or if like, or for me to explain, like communicate that I want to have sex. And I think that's such a good one. Mm-hmm. Most people are so scared, men and women or, you know, whatever are, are so scared of rejection 
when they initiate sex. And so I thought that was like a good question to ask because like oftentimes we don't know. We're just like hinting at it like, hey, like here's my tongue. Do you want to do you want to go further right now? (laughs) You know, and then we like take cues off of if they're into it or not. Right. And then like, we never like actually ask or even say it. We're just kind of like trying to feel it out. And then if like, if it's a no, we're like, okay, just kidding. Bye. And like, (laughs) so I think it's just, it's good to to ask that question too. Yeah. It said in there that most uh, men and women when they initiate, it's kind of passive because we're, we don't want rejection. So we're not just like, Hey, let's, let's hook up. And, and they said like, as you get older, the longer relationship more often, you're just like saying what you want, but it can be really like, you don't want to be rejected if you're like horny and you want something. And you know, it's happened opposite where your partners maybe come onto you and you're just not in the mood and it can make somebody feel so hurt. So yeah, it's really, it's good. Yeah. Well, on the topic of rejection, we did an episode on that as well, but this today's episode is kind of similar. Um, so if you've not listened to the WAP episode and the rejection episode, which are both recent ones, go ahead and listen to those. But we want to talk about something that Danny and I have both, I don't want to say overcome because it certainly comes back at times, but both of us, especially when we were younger and when we were you know, maybe in school age and when we were competing, we consider ourselves kind of recovered perfectionists or recovered control freaks or people who are trying to overcome that. And I would say for the most part, we're both about 90% there. There are certain things in our lives where we still do like to micromanage. But for the most part, I would say most people would categorize us as fairly laid back. We're pretty laid back in our relationships. We're pretty, pretty laid back in our work life. Um, and so we want to talk about steps to overcome perfectionism. Um, a lot of times people don't feel like perfectionism is an issue. The problem, the high level problem is that they've actually shown research that perfectionists take less action because they're so scared to put themselves out there. They will only do something if there's guaranteed success. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you have some sort of big dream or big thing that you're working on, whether that's your relationship or your work life or whatever. And we know that in order to get to the next level, like shit needs to be uncomfortable at some point. And if you're a perfectionist and you will only take action if like all of the ducks are in a row and you like have a guaranteed outcome, you're going to be waiting a long time. And so I said to Danny, why don't we do an episode on like how to, you know, overcome control freak tendencies and learn how to trust more. Yep. I love this so much. And I I actually identify more with being a control freak than a perfectionist. Um, I don't know why, because I, I feel like the the one piece of perfectionism was to not take action. And I, I feel like I've been an action taker. However, I was also the person who, if I didn't think I would do well, I just wouldn't do it at all. So I would like pick and choose things that I knew I was good at and just go that way. I would never put myself in a situation where I knew I wasn't good at something or I knew I didn't have a chance and try. And so I think that's a, a piece of perfectionism that's there. And maybe that's why, I don't know, I had this this piece of not being able to identify with that word as much. But Brendan Burchard, I was just at an event recently and he said that perfectionist is a perfectionism is a lie. Like if you're telling yourself you're not doing this because you're a perfectionist, he's like, that's a lie because perfectionism means you're going to try something and then perfect it and make it better. And too many people say, well, I haven't launched yet because it's not perfect or I haven't written the, the book yet because it's not perfect or I haven't made the video. And it's like, you're telling yourself that you're a perfectionist and that's why you're not doing it, but that's not the truth because then you would just perfect it. And that really hit me in the gut. I was like, oh, damn. That was kind of one of those quotes where I was just like, yeah, I think he's kind of right because I've held back on um, doing things that weren't totally right. And uh, 
I, I thought that was a really interesting thing. Like it's a, it's an excuse using perfectionism yeah. as an excuse to not do something. I know I was, there's another quote that I, I really love that's similar to that. That's like perfectionism is just another word for procrastination mm. and it so is. And so, you know, I think one of the things that you and I, like when I look back at our kind of history in, um, online business, but also competing and maybe athletic pursuits and things like that. I always loved individual sports. To me, like I was, I never loved team sports. I did a couple of team sports, but I, two things, I always was worried that I was going to let the other people down on the team. And I also didn't want to rely on the other people for my success. I love the idea of if I'm a track athlete or I'm a bodybuilder or whatever, it's on me. Like whether I succeed or I fail is completely on me. And I loved that. That made me feel just really in, quote, in control of the situation. And so, and then when I think about doing fitness competitions, if you, I, mean, I think most people who are listening to us know what those are, but if you're doing a figure competition, bikini competition, fitness competition, essentially they're all the same kind of thing. You try to have the quote, best physique and you get up on stage and you literally compare your body to other women on stage. You get in heels, you get in the bikini, you get the tan on, you flex your muscles. And it's this culmination of weeks of getting ready and getting lean and prepping. And then you get up on stage and you literally have judges who don't know you from anybody tell you if you have the best body on stage. And so I think that a lot of us who are athletic minded liked that pursuit because it was like the highest level of achievement. It was the ultimate sacrifice, right? It was like this whole thing that we could, were the best. No, not many people could do this. This is, you know, but it's dysfunctional. At least that's how I see it. For most people, I would say 95% of people do these shows. It becomes dysfunctional because we associate our self-worth mm. with how well we do in these shows or what our body looks like. And that is not healthy. So when I was doing them, I wasn't thinking about, oh, gee, I have my degree. I'm really smart. Oh, oh gee, I'm a good writer. I could you know, create a business. Oh, I'm a good personal trainer. I can help more people. I didn't see any of those. All I saw was, am I the leanest? Am I getting magazine covers? Am I winning these shows? Am I placing in these shows? Like it was a dysfunctional uh, relationship to self-worth. And I think as perfectionists, we chase opportunities like that to be the best or to prove. And oftentimes it's, it's maybe to the detriment of our, the balanced life that we want to create or the other things that we want to do in our life. I love that you said that we attach our self-worth to it. And I think that's the problem with it. Cause I can see someone going, well, what's the problem with being a perfectionist? What's the problem with wanting to be the best? And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be the best, wanting to be amazing, wanting to strive for excellence. But I think the piece that it really is, is that we attach our self-worth to it. And when we're not the quote unquote best, then we're not good enough or we're not good at all, or we're not worthy of whatever. And so I think that's the piece that really is the, it's the, it's why we need to get over it <laughs> because I think that ultimately it's not helping. It's not helping anyone. It's not helping the world when we feel like we're not a good person because we're not the best at all the things. And I wanted to ask you because I, well, I started making notes before this and thinking about where this came from. And I have a feeling that it's more of a learned behavior, but I think there's also a personality trait, like a type A kind of personality. I think some people are more, like born this way. Um, but I also think that part of it is our upbringing and maybe how we were validated as kids um, to our parents or teachers that kind of made us want to strive and be that way. So I was kind of curious as to where you think this started for you, like the control perfectionism mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, I think 
always a um, achievement was always a huge value in my family growing up. So achievement could be academic achievement, it could be athletic achievement. And, you know, while I always felt supported by my family and by my parents, it was always like, yes, you did well, but what else? It was always like, and I remember my mom and I had this fight because I remember I was so um, upset. This must have been like my, you know, when I was high school at some point. And I remember feeling so proud about something that I did. And she was like, cool, well, like maybe next time you can get and like named the next level, the next, you know, grade or the next award or whatever. And I remember getting so frustrated, like, how come you never see you're proud of me? How come nothing's ever good enough? And she, And I'll never forget this. She said to me, Jill, every time we've raised the bar, you've hit it. So why wouldn't we keep doing that? And so I think while I think the intention was good, like you want to push your children to, you know, realize their quote full potential, uh, the flip side or kind of the shadow side of that is that we can never, we get to the point where we never feel good enough. Mm. And so I loved what you said about, yes, you, I think there's nothing wrong with striving, but you need to have perspective. So Mm -hmm. for example, if you are striving and you get to the next thing, how do you, are you, do you have gratitude about it? Do you, um, you know, celebrate that? Or is it just like right onto the next thing? And so checking in with that, that could be a signal that you do have some perfectionist tendencies that might be a little dysfunctional. Now, striving is great, but you need to have that perspective of like, cool, this may or may not go well, but I'm courageous enough and I trust myself enough to handle whatever the fallout is. Yep. Yep. I, I love that. And that story because I was really the same to- for you. Yeah, it's really, it really was. And it's like, it was never, nothing was ever good enough, right? I get straight A's and I bring my report card home and it was like, of course you got straight A's. Like, that's what we expect of you. And if I got a B, which I think happened once in first grade or something, my mom went to the teacher to like get my grade changed. Like it's unacceptable. And then like the uh, behavior grades were like E, S, N, and E was like the best. If I didn't have all A's and all E's, It was like, I'm in trouble for not having perfect grades versus, uh, and this was the first time it ever stood out to me was sixth grade. We got our report cards and and we're at school versus they used to be sent home, I think. And the kids were going around like, let me see yours, let me see yours. And I remember some kid grabbing mine and they were just like, oh my gosh. And I didn't know what that meant. And he's like, I was like, give it back, trying to grab it. And he's running around with it. Like, look at this, look at this. And I was like, what is wrong? What's wrong with like, what's wrong with my report card? He's like, you got all A's. And I was like, suddenly it made me feel ashamed that I had that. And I was like, what does everyone else have? And there was like C's and different letters that I'd never seen. And I went home crying to my mom and I was like, why can't I just be normal? (laughs) And I thought that it was, and it was really weird because I knew I had to get those grades at home, but at school, I didn't want anyone to know. So this was also a piece that kind of made me start to like dim down my mm. myself and my talents to where I didn't want to outshine anyone either. So it was this weird um, dichotomy of like needing to achieve, but not wanting to get any attention for it, which is very mm. odd because a lot of times you want to achieve so that you do get the attention. And I had like the opposite of like, I need to win, but I don't want anyone to give me attention for it, <laughs> which is a strange thing. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. But I think, you know, growing up that that was the expectation. And I think subconsciously, maybe there's this idea that you're not loved unless you're doing something worth, you know, while. Well, that's why, like, when you think about, like, even the shows that we did, right, it wasn't really about, like, having a six-pack or winning a show in and of itself isn't anything. It's the attachment that you mm -hmm. make to it, which is, okay, if I'm good enough, then I can be affirmed or approved of or loved or adored or respected or whatever. It's always, it's always the, the thing that you're trying to get, right? So 
I know I've mentioned her work a bunch, but um, Byron Katie's book, I Need Your Love, Is It True? If you do, if you are someone who really does struggle with affirmation, especially if you're sitting here thinking, there's someone in my life who I'm always trying to prove myself to, whether that's a parent, whether that's a child, whether that's a sibling or a friend or a you know, boss, coworker, who are you constantly trying to get affirmation from? You just want them to tell you like, you're doing a good job. Like, you know, when in reality, we need to just tell ourselves fucking that. You know, just like at the end of the day, do I think that I did a good job? And so that's that kind of like internal motivation, internal affirmation versus looking for all of these ways that I'm going to be affirmed by society or someone that I love. And oftentimes it's a parent. And so was that, do you feel like you kind of was always, were always striving for them to say something in particular to give you the validation or no? Yeah, I don't know if I wanted that. I think less, more of it was like not wanting to be in trouble than (laughs) wanting actual validation. It was like, if I don't do it, then I'm bad. So I have to, but I, I don't even know if I ever desired the, I'm proud of you. I I don't even know if I thought that existed. I just knew like the expectations were high and I had to reach that. And probably ultimately I do just, I would have just wished there were like, Hey, you did a great job, you know, and that I got some affirmation that way. And I found as a, you know, I've, as I've gotten older and I know you and I have talked about this too. And like we, with the podcast, even is celebrating little things like, okay, we did a hundred episodes. Let's celebrate. Um, we, we've done these small things and we celebrate it because for so long it was like graduate high school. Okay. Big deal. Everyone does that. Okay. Get your degree. Big deal. Everyone does that. Okay. Get your master's degree. It was like, nothing was ever celebrated. Like I went to school for four years and I didn't even celebrate my bachelor's degree. And I was the first one in my family to ever get that. But it was like, okay, of course you did. You're supposed to do that. And it's, it's sad in a way because no, no achievements are ever, ever appreciated or ever, you know, and I think ultimately I talk about this with money and being faithful with the little things is I really don't believe that you can have more unless you you value what you have. So like we, all, we talk about mm-hmm. this in building an audience. If you aren't serving your audience of a hundred, why are you going to have a hundred thousand? And if you're making a thousand dollars a month and you're really like complaining about that, why would you be able to earn 10,000 a month or a hundred thousand a month? And so ultimately when you're not validating your own like experiences and um, accomplishments, I think you end up stifling your own growth and you cannot keep growing because you're not, it's not good enough. And of course, you know, I, I say that. And then I look at people where, who are really high achieving individuals, like celebrities and stuff. And I'm like, you know, maybe they are still getting that, but ultimately if they're unhappy, then what's it worth? You know, I, I know a couple of Olympian gymnasts and, and they had that perfectionist. I think gymnastics kind of attracts that. And, um, they hit the Olympics and it was still like, that was your whole life dream and you get there and that was like, that was it. And so ultimately, if you're never like proud of yourself, then when you even hit those goals there, they seem without meaning and they feel empty when you get there. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that you said like, what's the point if you're miserable? Like even if you mm-hmm. reach that point of achievement and you're, and you're miserable still, it's so funny. So I watched The Last Dance, which is the Michael Jordan documentary. Mm-hmm. It was so good, but anyone who was following it was like, okay, I realize why he was so fucking successful because he was so driven, but to the point where he had these grudges for like 20 years with one person who did one thing one time to the point where he was actually giving a speech when he was accepted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, and his entire speech was about how this one person doubted him 20 years ago. Yeah. 
like, okay, I understand why you were successful, but if you don't enjoy it and you can't just be satisfied, like, why are we taking all of this time that you're in a speech to talk about that guy? And so that really hit me as like, wow, you know, there, there is a fine line, I think, between like someone who wants to achieve and then also just not taking shit personally, which comes down to a lot of times people who are control freaks or perfectionists are scared to take new action or bigger action because if it doesn't go well, they do take it personally. And that's what's really hard is trying to detach from like, I'm going to try something new and this is scary and I've never done this before. You and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs in this space. You're going to do your first launch. You're going to put out your first product. You're going to ask for something on social media. You're going to, you know, tell a vulnerable story on Instagram, like all of these really like small vulnerabilities. But for someone just getting started, they just feel like, oh my God, what's the worst that's going to happen? I might die like this. I'm not going to survive this. And I think if things don't go well, being able to get clinical with like, cool, and this is a practice and I'm saying this as much for myself as I am for all my clients and anyone who's listening to this is like, it's always a practice, right? Because it's our baby, especially if you own your own business, I think it's your baby. So it's like, I've been working so hard on this thing. I've been working for months and months and months. I'm about to like birth this new program. And if it doesn't convert, like I think it quote should, then like, it must mean I'm bad. Maybe I don't, shouldn't do this. People don't like me. Maybe I should just throw the towel in. I'm not made for this. And that word always catastrophizing me go down instead of just looking at it clinically. And so I think if you are someone who takes your failures really personally, a good practice is trying to just look at it objectively and realize there's always somewhere to go with it. There's, there's always ways to get better, but it's not about you being bad. It's just about the situation didn't go right. And so I think it's also like if you are someone who doesn't take action because you're a perfectionist, this is a good practice. Yes. So I love that we're talking about this. Like, And I think perfectionism and uh, being a control freak kind of go hand in hand. Um, uh, we have a friend, Natalie Jill. She's been on the podcast and she is, she calls herself or has called herself in the past a control freak and always had to have her business in control. And she found over the last couple of years, just things kept not, she couldn't control, couldn't control. She ended up going to Rhythmia actually. And she came back and realized that she just wasn't in control. She got this tattoo surrender on her arm. Mm. And I thought it was really cool because I started to think when we were talking about this, what's the opposite of control. And for me, the opposite of control is either trust or it's surrender. And I feel like we can even do a whole podcast on trust versus surrender. Like what are those two? Cause I feel like they're two sides of the same coin in a way. Mm. Um, but to tell someone who's a control freak that they need to surrender, it's like that almost physically feels like anxiety immediately. Like, oh my God, what do you mean? I can't let go. But I remember the very first time where I felt that I really didn't have control. And for so long, I tried to control my body through, you know, whatever, dieting and exercise and all of those things. And I feel like the control piece maybe also comes from a childhood thing. I felt like for me, I always felt like my mom was trying to control me by telling me what, you know, where she wanted me to go, what classes to take and who she wanted me to be like the cheerleader type and the student council and all those things like were not me. So I felt like I was trying to take control back and control through my body. And when I was pregnant, it was the first time that I didn't have any control over my body. Like, and I'm sure a lot of women on here have gone through pregnancy. And if you haven't, you've know what pregnancy looks like. <laughs> you have no control of your body, your boobs getting bigger, your stomach getting bigger, mm. stretch marks happening, all this, like I could not do anything to stop it. Right. And not only that, then when my baby was big enough 
and you could feel like you put your hand on your stomach and you could feel her moving. Remember friends putting their hand on my stomach and going, she's not moving, make her move. And I just remember going, I can't, like, it's not me. It's another, it was so bizarre to have this thing that this is my body, but I can't make it do what I want it to do because it's actually not my body. And this was a big, big piece of like really realizing that I don't have control over everything as much as I think. And I think we've all had a moment where we realize whether it's an accident, an injury, a job loss or something where we've lost control. And this may be the reason why you want to control. Like maybe there was a piece in your life whenever a trauma that triggered you to feel like you needed to be in control. And we have to realize that that trauma we can undo and really look at it objectively, like Jill says, is like to take a look at it from our eyes today, like our 30 year old selves, 40 year old selves, however old we are to look back at our six year old self or teenage self or wherever and go, I can see why I felt out of control and why I suddenly wanted it. But if I can look at it now and realize that there's nothing I probably could have done anyway. And how is this helping me today? How are my control, my controlling behaviors serving me today? And they've gotten us to a place where we are now. I think we're, as humans, we just want to survive. And so our survival instincts may be to try to pull back control because we feel like we lost it. But it doesn't always help us going forward in the places that we want to go and where we want to be in our lives. Mm-hmm. I love that story and I, I've heard you tell that before and that's, it's such a great example of just going like, well, I thought like control is great until you can't get it, right? And so for me, the first time I experienced that, because like one very common, especially in the health and fitness space is going, well, you don't have control of everything, but you always have control of what you put in your mouth, right? You always have control of like your workouts. And I know for you, especially someone who went through the adrenal fatigue and all that you went through for me, I remember that was my mantra, especially when I was like a competitor, right? Like, oh, I'm just, I'm strong. I can sacrifice. It's just like, if there's a will, there's a way. Until literally I couldn't control what I was putting in my mouth. Yeah. And I had so much shame over that. I was just had binge eating disorder and I was eating and I was overindulging and I would get off the stage or I'd get done with some sort of diet and I couldn't. I literally was like, and I remember just being like, Jill, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like everyone else can do it. You're so weak. Like you can't stop this. And so yes, control. Yes. You always have control of what you put in your mouth. And so when I didn't have like true control and I really, my physiology was so starved, so deprived to the point that like all I could do was just eat everything. I felt the discrepancy create a lot of shame. Like I should be able to do this, but I can't, I'm weak, right? So that discrepancy, that gap between like where you feel like you should be and where you actually are is fucking misery. So then I just had to, I like literally just had to put my objective hat on and be like, okay, I hate this, but also I don't have control over what I put in my mouth as much as I want to. So how can I figure this out so I can get back in control? And it's not going to be doing this shit over here because that's not working. Did you have something similar like that? Yes. And that was, it was such, that's such a good story. And that you just put a tweet on Instagram the other day about this, about just attaching um, like shame to binge eating when it's just a natural repercussion of just starving yourself for so long. And yeah, you do, you do attach shame to that. And I want to say that uh, quote or whatever it is that you can control, you can't control what you put in your mouth or can control what you put in your mouth is does such a disservice 
to people. I mean, it's just like saying someone no with any kind of addiction, yeah. any kind of addiction, like, oh, you can just stop smoking at any time. You can just stop drugs at any time. It's like, there's some shit that just gets out of control and suddenly you've, you've lost control and losing control is really scary. And that's kind of that place where you are. Like when you're binging and you're doing that, you start to feel like I've lost control and I don't know how to get it back. And when you try to get it back, you make it worse, right? Make <laughs> you're like, worse. I'm just, I'm just going to restrict again. And like the thing that's causing the loss of control you're trying to control and it just turns into this cycle and spiral. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like what you said, getting out of it. I think what's so funny is how we get out of that. At least how I got out of it was doing the exact opposite, which was completely giving in, completely surrendering, completely just kind of saying, fuck it, I'm going to eat what I want because that was, I finally got my body back on track. And I think ultimately when we do surrender and go, whether you like some people say like give it up to God or give it up whatever like you you kind of let go of trying to hold like white knuckle at all I think that we inherently have this uh, internal knowing of what to do or our bodies want to reset themselves a certain way and so I think when we can surrender we can let go we have to trust and maybe it's not trusting ourselves. Maybe it's just trusting Jill and I saying it's going to work or maybe it's trusting a friend of yours saying it's they'll be there for you. Like you might not have self-trust at the moment when you're surrendering or letting go of control, but allowing yourself the time and space to just kind of let go and see what happens and realizing that like life still goes, the world keeps spinning, the sun keeps rising and setting. And, you know, maybe everything didn't fall apart like you thought it would. And maybe it did. And maybe it was supposed to fall apart. And then but you look back and you go, wow, yeah. like, <laughs> the thing I was so terrified of happening actually happened. Yeah. And I am alive to tell the tale. Like, it's fine, yeah. right? And so I think, you know, getting to the point where, and then so to your point, how do you build that self-trust or how do you start like, I don't think you just go like, fuck it and whatever. You like have these like small things that, okay, let me try to, and we all know what it feels like to feel vulnerable. Like there's a, there's this feeling, um, I don't know, there's like this meme that like when you send a, like a long ass text to like someone you're interested in and they don't respond back and you're like, just kidding, right? Like we all know <laughs> that like it's the longest one minute of your life waiting for someone to respond to a text like that, right? It's like the longest time. So we all know what it feels like to be vulnerable. I think you need to practice mm -hmm. being more vulnerable. And so one thing I wrote down in my notes before we started was having uncomfortable conversations. I think these are the easiest, not easy, but probably some of the least risky ways to start this process. We've done a whole other episode on um, having courageous conversations or you know communication or something like that. And so we break down how to have these conversations. Um, and I think that those are, and we all know, probably all of us have one person in our life, at least right now, that like we are probably do need to have a conversation with. Someone we are like constantly complaining about or someone we're, we're really scared we're gonna let down. That's what's really hard is like, we are relational beings. Humans, we, we get good at this by interacting with other people. And one thing we'll never have control over is how other people respond mm. to shit. And so one of the things that Byron Katie says that I love, she just goes, I never have to wonder what someone's going to do because they just do what they do. So it's like as much as you want them to have the perfect response, the most like understanding, empathetic, perfect response to the thing that you're sharing, they might not because they're them. And they are an autonomous being and they might get angry. They might get up, upset. They might get sad. They might cry. They might give you the cold shoulder. They might disengage. They might disown you. Like all the things that we're so scared of potentially happening but you have to give it a shot because what if you're not doing that, then you're honestly not growing and you're not adapting. And so I think having conversations that are a little bit scary, just go in, try it, 
it's probably going to be one of several conversations, but just a little bit. And so we, I know we've talked about this like ad nauseum, but I think that's probably a good way to start trusting yourself and going, that was not fun at all, but I'm on the other side of it. And I'm so glad that I did. And I'm proud of myself for doing it. Yep. Yep. I love that. And I love that you said practice. Cause I think all of the tips we may suggest or bring up are all practices. I think that you can't just flip a switch and go from like, I no longer controlling perfectionistic. Now I'm just, and I think this is an idea that we think if we're not that, then we're a slob, we're messy, we don't have ambition, and that everything is just falling apart. So we have to be that because otherwise we're the other thing. And there's not, like, I love Jill's moderation 365 just because moderation is, there is a middle ground. There's a middle to everything. And too many of us, especially type A perfectionists, only see black and white. And there's, a, there's some gray there. There's some light gray and there's some really dark gray but there's shades in there that aren't just black or white. And so just because you're quote, giving up some control doesn't mean you're just letting everything go and your house is going to fall apart and your kids are going to turn to crime and you know, like everything's falling apart. I think um, what Jill said about practice and conversations is amazing. And I think we can also practice doing small things that aren't perfectionist tendencies. So one of my first things I did after dieting was stopped weighing my food and I mm. was terrified and anxious. And I remember eyeballing it, still trying to like mentally put four ounces on my plate of chicken. And then I was like, I'm, that's not enough. I want more. So I started eating more than four ounces, like, and I didn't die, but it was a practice and it was super uncomfortable and super anxiety producing to not be weighing and measuring every single thing, but I had to do it to get out of that. That was controlling me, right? Talking about loss of control. It's an interesting thing how the thing we try to control eventually controls you. Mm. And I was controlling my food all the time and suddenly my food was controlling me and I had to break those chains. So starting with no more weighing, no more measuring. I'm just going to put food on my plate. I'm going to eyeball it to see how much I actually want, not how much I think I should be eating, how much I actually want. And so finding small things like that, that maybe you're OCD about, maybe literally you're so OCD about wiping down the counters. Maybe you just leave a bottle on the counter and leave it there for half a day and just walk <laughs> around, leave the bathroom. And there's like a bottle of hairspray on the counter you didn't put away. Just leave it for a couple hours. Be uncomfortable for a while with it and then go back and put it away. Like do something that makes you uncomfortable. And I know some people like, like my counter looks like a mess, but for some people that would make them so anxious. And if that's you, then do that little thing, like leave something out just, just to make yourself do it and feel it. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's funny. I remember, I think I had some more OCD tendencies when I was younger. Me too. Yeah. Like I remember I'd have to have like an out cabinet if there were cans, all the labels had to be facing out. And then I realized it was dysfunctional. Like I was like, okay, this is like, I'm spending way too much fucking time worrying about this is when I was like, you know, kid. And so I remember just like, like purposely turning it away so that the label wasn't facing out and like yeah. nothing happened. It was okay. Yeah. Like the yeah. boogeyman didn't come or whatever I was like scared of happening. And so I think there's so much, and I love that you brought up that example about like food controlling you. Cause when I think about trust, it really is the ultimate in control, isn't it? It's the, what you're trying to get. If you trust yourself and you trust that like whatever happens, you're going to be able to handle it. That's the ultimate in control, isn't it? Cool. I got it. You know, I do have a question for you. And this is like the last thing I had on my list. And I'd be interested in your take on this is you and I both are business owners. We in our business have certain things that we don't want to delegate. At least I know I do because at times when I have tried to delegate it, the thing that I was scared of happening fucking happened. And there was some uncomfortable, bad outcome that I'm like, I don't want that to happen again. Mm -hmm. So 
what do you do if that's if what you're like, okay, Jill and Danny, I hear what you're saying, but the thing that I was scared of actually happened. I did stop weighing and measure my food and I gained 30 pounds. Now mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's so funny because it's uh, going through this right now and I've been having this mental conversations. Um, so we started this little side business during quarantine doing these Simpsons drawings on Shopify and we need to have a VA to take care of all of the customer service. I've been doing all the customer service because I wasn't making any money. I'm like, I don't want to spend any money on customer service. Like, let me take care of it until it's profitable. But now we're getting so many orders and it's taking up too much of my time, which I shouldn't be doing. And Jeff wanted to hire somebody and I'm getting so anxious about they're not going to do it as good as me. They're not going to answer the way I would answer. They're, everything's going to fall apart and like the customer service really matters. And I've been really thinking about this a lot and I'm trying to um, create processes and systems so that, because I've had the experience you're saying in the past where it wasn't, it fell apart or everything happened how I thought it would. And I realized ultimately those were my, that was my fault because I think I passed along a task thinking the person would do it the way I wanted them to or do it the way I would have without explaining my thought process behind something. So I started to make videos today and I'm, talking through, okay, here's what I would do. And here's why I do it. This is why. And I think when we delegate, if we can pass on the why we're doing something and the thought process, then the person picking up the task has a better chance of succeeding than if you just pass off a task without letting them know. And I think too much for us as business owners, a lot of times we pass off a task when suddenly we're too busy to handle it and we don't have enough Mm. time to train the person properly we didn't give them the best instructions and we set them up for failure and ultimately set ourselves up for failure. So I think we have to take more time. There's a quote from Jeff Olson, who's one of my mentors and wrote the site edge. He says, you have to go slow to go fast. Mm. And if you want to speed up and delegate, you have to slow down, take the time to train somebody, give them the thought process behind something and then give them the tools to succeed. And too often we don't. And I'm totally guilty of this and still struggle with it. But I, I realized that in the past, whenever I've had those experiences where things fell apart, I probably didn't set the person up the best way or I didn't vet them properly beforehand. Like maybe they weren't Mm. the best fit. Maybe they were really, you know, amazing friend, but they're not the most detail oriented person. And I needed a detail person for the job. So hiring correctly, giving them a why, and then taking the time to actually train someone, I think will really help with that. Yeah. And and I love that you said that. And I completely agree because I'm like sitting here nodding the entire time. Like, yeah, I definitely (laughs) am super guilty of that. Because I think like you, I I know for me, like things just didn't really, especially like around business and stuff, like never really came super hard to me. Like I never Mm -hmm. needed to ask someone a bunch of like really small questions about how to run my business. I just kind of like learned and took things in and kind of had a natural tendency for it. And so I think I assume that someone I bring on will just kind of be able to get it too when it's like, that's a huge disservice to them that I'm not explaining it. And then if you do this right, like if you're delegating in your business and you're hiring someone to do something that you kind of suck at or you're not as good at, they should do it better. Like, cause they're a professional at that, you know, like bringing on someone to do the administrative tasks in my business, like they should probably do it better. And they do do it better because mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm shitty at that. And so, and even if they don't do it the exact way that you would do it, do they do it good enough? Is it good enough? Because good enough gets results too. Yep. And I think oftentimes we have to, like if they can get 80% of the way, 90% of the way that you would do it, like I think that's probably good enough and it's going to get it off your mental plate enough so that you can actually strive in the places that, you're, that are your strengths. 
Yeah. And also to something that we work with a lot, I think you work mostly with trainers who are trying to get out of the gym and online. And I've seen this with trainers and hairstylists who they don't want to give up their clients. They, they know they need to get online. They know that they need time freedom or want time freedom. They have a desire for this lifestyle, mm. but they feel so attached to their clients. They they won't leave the gym and they're so afraid that someone else can't take them. And I had this, I kind of went off on these um, stylists at a hair retreat I was speaking at. And I said, that is the most egotistical thing you could do. Like you think someone else can't do their hair just as good as you can do their hair. You don't think there's another trainer that can train just as good as you. So you have to really get out of your own way because you're not only not trusting anyone, but then you're also holding yourself back at the gifts that you can present to people. Like you have this one-on-one -on -one client when you could be speaking to multitude and helping hundreds and thousands of people. And yet you're not letting, you're not letting yourself shine in that way because you're worried about this one client and no one else is good enough. And I think our ego sometimes gets in the way and we have to kind of check ourselves and go, you know what, someone else could do this. I'm really good, you know, and maybe I am the best, but I could find someone else who is eager and wants to learn and this client is going to be okay and they're going to live, you know, without me as their, you know, person. Oh my God, I love that you said that. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, when I was personal training, I was fine, like kind of slowly. I had clients that I was attached to, but it was more my group fitness classes. Mm -hmm. I was like, I know that these people only come here for me, right? It, like to your point, it's so fucking arrogant. Like it's a workout, like it's fine. You know, I know they like my energy, whatever, but I stayed a little bit long because I didn't want to let them down or, and here's the thing. Some of your clients are going to be upset. Some of your group fitness instructors or whatever, or, or participants are going to be upset because they want you. But in order, like Danny said, for you to grow and get to the next level, like, sorry, like, sorry, they, they can figure it out, right? Yeah. This is a two-way street. They could fire you anytime. <laughs> sorry, true. but like, you're on to the next thing. It doesn't mean you're better than. I think sometimes like clients, I, have, I deal with this a lot with my, my current business clients is they hate disappointing their one-on-one -on -one clients, mm -hmm. but they have to raise their rate in order to keep growing. They have to leave the gym in order to keep growing. They have to, you know, cut and have tighter boundaries to keep growing. And not everyone's going to understand that. So it goes back to having these uncomfortable conversations and having these vulnerable moments that do fortify you. So I remember when I finally quit all of my fitness classes, I was like, why the fuck didn't I do that sooner? I was like, everyone's fine. Everyone was fine. And I was so much happier. Same, same. It's like if you make it so much bigger in your head and make people think that you're, I don't know, you, you convince yourself you're everyone's savior or something. And that just is an ego trip. It's just a massive ego trip. So not and, true. And ultimately too, you know, I look at maybe some of the big people out there like Brenda Burchard or Tony Robbins or Oprah, you know, if they just sat there with their one-on-one -on -one clients because they were too scared to let them go, we wouldn't have their work in the world. So many people out there and those are just big names because I know you'll recognize them, but there's so many people who are doing great work and it would be a really sad disservice if they were stuck there because they didn't want to disappoint like three people that they totally. had one-on-one. -on -one. So I think totally. it's, I think it's a big piece to just, get out of your own way and um, get over your, get over yourself. Yeah. Get over yourself and get out of your own way. That's, that's yep. for sure. It. So hopefully you guys can relate to these. Um, we gave you a ton of examples and I'm hoping that at least some of them hit on some things that you're maybe struggling with or have struggled with in the past. Um, love to continue this conversation, obviously. And if you are interested in this or you kind of start recognizing yourself in some of these things and you want to learn to trust yourself more, the happiness diet is a program that Danny and I put together. This is our only, 
only personal development program and we just sell it through the best life at this point. Um, and honestly, we talk a lot about productivity. We talk a lot about overcoming perfectionism. We talk a lot about, um, you know, what you need to do to trust yourself more, some uncomfortable conversations you might need to have, a lot around communication, a lot around um, limiting beliefs. And so if you are someone who feels just hamstrung by some of these things and you're recognizing yourself in this conversation, Danny and I put all of our best tools, strategies, et cetera, into The Happiness Diet. You can check all the details at thehappinessdiet.com, thehappinessdiet.com. Check out the details. Definitely recommend you guys grab a copy. I mean, it's like a kind of a no-brainer if you're into this type of content. Um, but yeah. Boom. The best investment you can make in yourself in 2020 totally. or ever. If you're listening to this in 2024. <laughs> you guys are amazing. Thank you it for the continued one. reviews and uh, we want to hear some of your stories out here. So hit us up at thebestlifepodcast.com too and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye guys. Bye.